When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, give us eyes to see the glorious things that are revealed for us in your word and a heart to follow after you. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Back in 2016, the Chicago Cubs celebrated their first World Series victory in more than 100 years with a parade through downtown Chicago. Uh, People tell us that it's probably the largest or one of the largest gatherings of humans on the planet ever. Five million people in downtown Chicago watching the players come down in their fancy cars, hoisting up the commissioner's trophy as they celebrated their win. Victory celebrations are something that are common in every society down through history. Uh, This summer, my family and I got to go to Rome for a couple of weeks, or to Italy for a couple of weeks, and when we were in Rome, we were able to see the Arch of Titus right outside the Colosseum, and that Arch of Titus had been constructed to celebrate Rome's victory over the Jewish people back in 70 A.D., And as part of their victory, and it's carved into this arch, part of their victory, they took with them spoils of war, uh, the menorah from the temple, the table of showbread, other sacred objects that are carved into the arch. Something similar is happening here in 1 Samuel chapter 5. The Philistines have beaten the Israelite army at the battle of Ebenezer. That's what we looked at last week in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And now they have taken the Ark of the Covenant as a spoil of war, and they have brought it to Ashdod. Ashdod is one of the five major cities of Philistia. And they have set up this ark of God into the temple of their God as a kind of trophy. There is, you know, the, before the, the, the god Dagon. Now, Dagon is an interesting god. Uh, he was one of the Canaanite gods there in the land around Israel that the Philistines had adopted for their own worship. Scholars tell us that he was a, a grain god, a, a corn god. So, you know, here in the U.S., he's probably going to be more popular in Iowa than he would be here in, in Texas. You know, lots of Daganites uh, wandering around Iowa. But by putting the Ark of the Covenant in that temple, the Philistines are saying, you lose. Our God is more powerful than Israel's God. 
And you can imagine the party, you can imagine the celebration, you can imagine the parade as the Ark of the Covenant is brought through the streets of Ashdod and set into that temple. But the next morning, worry and confusion begin to set in. Chapter 5, verse 3, the people of Ashdod rose early the next day. Behold, Dagon had fallen face downward before the ark of the Lord. Well, I mean, Eric, maybe there had been uh, an earthquake, or, or maybe one of those assistant priests, they knocked it over. You know, you can't, can't quite trust an assistant priest these days. But weird things happen, right? Weird things happen all the time. Okay, well, let's just set Dagon back up, and this is comical in and of itself. This is the thing you're going to worship? The thing that you have to take care of, that you have to dust off, that you have to set back into its place? Say a quick prayer, and everything's going to be okay. But the next morning, something even worse had happened. Verse 4, Dagon has fallen again. But this time, he isn't just face down in front of the ark of the Lord. No, his head is chopped off. His hands are chopped off. This God of the Philistines is being treated like a vanquished ancient king, defeated and dismembered. There's no natural explanation for this. You can imagine the Philistines' confusion. What's going on? We, we thought that our God was more powerful than Israel's God. We have this Ark of the Lord as a trophy in our temple, but now everything is going wrong. And it's not just going wrong in the temple. Things are starting to happen in the city of Ashdod as well. It wasn't enough for God to dismember Dagon. No, He's going to send a plague to the city of Ashdod. Look at verse 6 with me. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. I know some of you like to have uh, the King James Version uh, on Sunday mornings, you like to hold that as we work our way. I normally preach out of the English Standard Version, but If you have the King James Version in front of you, you might notice that they translate that word tumor as hemorrhoids. Now, hemorrhoids are uncomfortable, but they're hardly lethal. Some of you are like, hey, I've got a story to tell you. (laughs) We read farther in chapter 6 that there's also at the same time these tumors are breaking out on people, there's also a rodent plague, mice, rats running around the city. And so most scholars now working their way through 1 Samuel think that actually what has happened is that the Lord has unleashed through these natural experiences of mice in the city a kind of bubonic plague that afflicted the Philistines. We'll read in chapter 6 that some people died. We'll read also that some people are just afflicted by these boils, by these tumors. Regardless of exactly what's happening, what what you have to understand is that the men and women of Ashdod, this city, this great city, they thought that they had won, and now they are totally confused. They don't know what to do. 
And so they gather together kind of the leading men and they go, well, here's a plan. Let's get rid of it. <laughs> Let's send it from Ashdod to Gath, verse 8. Well, problem happens. The same thing happens in Gath as happens in Ashdod. And people start dying and their boils start exploding onto their bodies. And so verse 10, those people decide they're going to send the ark onto Ekron, one of the other major cities. Well, the people of Ekron are not stupid. They have heard what's going on in Philistia. So they stand at the gate and they say, no, you're not bringing that in here. You're trying to kill us. The Philistines finally have enough of their victory and they decide to get rid of the ark altogether. They decide to put it on a cart and let a couple of cows take it by themselves on into Israel. In chapter 6, verse 3, their pagan priests give the Philistines some advice. They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. A guilt offering. What kind of guilt offering do you give to a God who has afflicted you with mice and tumors? Well, apparently, little golden mice and tumors. Verse 5, you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Did you ever think, who modeled for those tumors? <laughs> oh, Bob, man, that's a big one. Hold on, let me cast that so we can like cover it in gold. What a weird atonement. What a weird guilt offering. But of course, left to ourselves, we come up with all kinds of strange things to offer to God. All kinds of ways that we think God should be worshipped. All kinds of ways that we think our guilt should be put away from us. And that's that's what the priests are saying. This is an atonement. This is a guilt offering. You see, these pagans knew that something had gone wrong. They knew that an atonement was necessary. They knew that God was punishing them. They knew that there was a gap between who they were and who this mysterious, terrifying God was. The way this story is told, we're supposed to laugh. You can imagine this story being told around the campfires in Israel as they recounted first the, the tragic loss of the ark, but then the hysteric way, the hysterical way that events unfolded in Philistia that, that brought the ark back. You're, you're supposed to laugh at the silliness of these pagans who think that their God is greater than the true God. You're supposed to laugh at the image of Dagon face down, vanquished before the ark. You're supposed to laugh at these enemies of God being overrun with mice and plague, playing hot potato with the ark of the covenant. I don't want it. You take it now. But the humor will quickly turn to horror as the ark returns to Israel. 
We read in chapter 6, verse 10, that the Philistines took a couple of cows, put them on a brand new cart, and loaded up the ark on top of the cart and sent the cart toward Israel. They had a really interesting reason for why they did this. They're still not exactly sure if this is Israel's God who is inflicting them or if this is just, you know, unfortunate circumstances and coincidence. And so they, they come up with this plan. We're going to send those cows off and they're going to make their way to, is, to, to Israel. And if they don't turn back, then we'll know that it was God, the God of Israel that inflicted this on us. But if they turn back and they even gave themselves an ace in the hole, they, they took their calves and locked them up so that the mama cows could hear their calves mooing in the distance. If they turn back toward their calves, then we'll know that this is just something that was circumstantial. But of course, that cart goes straight into Israel, and it goes straight into the town of Beth Shemesh. Beth Shemesh was one of the border towns between the Philistines, and Israel, but more important than that, it was a town that was named in the book of Joshua as belonging to the Levitical priests. So when we read that the cart came, verse 14, excuse me, uh, verse 12, verse 13, that's where I'm at. Uh, When we read in verse 13, Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. These folks knew what the ark was. They were Levites. This was a town that was filled with the people that God had set apart to care for the ark. And we begin to think, well, maybe this story has a happily ever after ending. The ark is making its way to the Levites, the very ones that God appoints to take care of the ark. Verse 13, the people rejoice. Verse 14, they they offer some sacrifices. Everything looks like it's going well. But then this day of joy turns into a day of horror. Look at verse 19. And God struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, Because they looked upon the ark of the Lord, he struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned, because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Who did God strike down? The men of Beth Shemesh. Who were the men of Beth Shemesh? They were Levites. They were the professional religious order of God the ones who should have known better. But those who were called to care for the ark actually treat it with contempt. They are tempted to look into it. The the language there is, is ambiguous. Is it looking just at the ark or is it opening up the lid of the ark and looking into the ark? However it is, These Levites who should have known better treat the ark as if it's of no consequence. And as a result, they discover what Hebrews 10.31 says. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Does this surprise you? Does it surprise you that God would punish his own people? Great preacher Alistair Begg 
writes, the reason that we stumble here sometimes is because we have a wrong view of God. We have a God of our own invention, a domesticated God, an easygoing and tolerant God, a God who is more interested in our happiness than our holiness, a God who is more interested in our happiness than our holiness. I think that's pretty much the God of American Christianity writ large, isn't it? That God exists to please me. That God exists to ensure that my life is easy. But 1 Samuel shows us what happens when people actually come face to face with the holiness of the living God. What happens? They don't want to be near him. They want distance. They want safety. They want relief. Look at verse 20. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? Get God out of town. Get this thing away from us. But of course, isn't this interesting? They are asking the exact same question that the Philistines asked. Chapter 6, verse 2. What should we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. Get this thing away from us. It's the same sentiment that the Apostle Peter expresses in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, when he tells Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Both the Philistines and the Israelites ask the same question when they are confronted with God's holiness. How can I get away from you? How can I put some distance between me and you? God's holiness properly understood causes people to shrink away. They understand the danger that they are in. Maybe that's been true of you too. You have come face to face with the holiness of God. You have seen your sin in God's eyes. And what do you want to do? Well, that God is a threat, isn't he? You want to put some distance between God and yourself. This is why we flee from God. This is why we push him away. This is why we distract ourselves so we don't have to think about God. This is why we create idols like Dagon. Well, here's something I can control. Here's something that I have some power over rather than seeing myself in God's eyes. We want distance from God, and sometimes God actually answers that prayer. Sometimes He actually gives us that relief. He calls off the hounds of heaven. Has that ever happened to you? Where you've run as far as you can away from God, and suddenly the feet 
of God aren't pounding the pavement after you anymore. He pulls away from us. He stops pursuing us. But giving us what we want isn't good news. The relief that we may feel to no longer be pursued by God It's only a temporary relief because one day we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And there is no refuge from this terrible, terrifying God except the refuge that is found in this terrifying God. We must be saved from God by God. In chapter 7, verse 1, we read about Eleazar, a new priest who is consecrated to care for the ark. And as a new priest, he will serve where Eli and his sons used to serve, not, not up in Shiloh. He'll be at his house there in Kiriath-Jerim. But he will offer the sacrifices that Eli and his sons used to offer. He will serve the people of God. And those sacrifices were supposed to bring sinners close to a holy God. They're supposed to shrink the distance between the holiness of God and and our sin. But Eleazar's sacrifices, as we read in the book of Hebrews, as was common for all sacrifices in the Old Testament, they couldn't do the job completely. They couldn't finally and forever put away sin. And I think very tellingly, the ark, instead of it being in the midst of God's people, where God's people could go up and worship, well, now it's sitting in the back bedroom of Abinadab. It's as far away from the people as you can possibly get. God has withdrawn himself. The distance is still there. And so even as beneficial as Eleazar's ministry might have been, it was incomplete. And it pointed to the need for a greater priest yet to come. One who would be both priest and and sacrifice. You see, in human history, the almighty second person of the Trinity, the Lord of glory, stooped down and took on a human nature. And for our sake, He was condemned to death and He suffered the wrath of a holy God. And when Jesus on the cross cries out, my God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? The reality behind that cry should stagger our imagination. God was forsaken by God. Because God doesn't just provide a means of salvation. God Himself does the saving work. The victory of God over a silly idol in Ashdod. The victory of God over an unbelieving 
city of Levites in Beth Shemesh. The victory of God, even over you and me, it is a threat. It's a threat to all of us who want to make our own rules. The victory of God is a threat to all of us who want to live our own way, who want to be our own gods. But when we lay down our arms, when we acknowledge our defeat, then his victory is no longer a threat to run away from. It is the hope we run toward. Because the awesome power and holiness, the heavy hand of the Lord we read in chapter 5, it's not being pressed down on you. The heavy hand of the Lord that the people of Ashdod felt as judgment hit them, that heavy hand is being pressed down on the sun. And as the judgment is poured out on him, you are saved. And now that same glorious hand lifts you up and it seats you in the heavenly places where you are kept safe. Safe until the day the God of gods and Lord of lords finishes his victory over sin and death. Until the day that a new creation dawns that will never be stained by sin. Until we have new bodies that will never know sickness or death. Until we are the people living in a new world that will never fade away. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see Jesus, who has crossed the difference, the distance between your holiness and our sin. And as those who believe in Jesus, help us to remember that we now share in his holiness, so that together with him, we can be called the sons of God sitting at your right hand. God, give us eyes to see that glorious truth so that when we are blinded by our own sin, we don't shrink back in terror, but we press forward in confidence knowing that Jesus has made the way. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.